you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. 1 Samuel chapter 24. As you turn there, I am uh, fully aware this morning, thinking about how the, all we've done in the service already, as I thought about this coming up, knowing we had a kind of a full service today at the First Communion and, uh, and the child dedication I thought I'm fully aware this morning that in the scheme of eternity, the most significant thing I might do today might already be done by this moment. Who knows what God will do with those lives as they go on from here. But I believe that God has a word for us from his word today that we need to hear from him. I'm going to ask you to stand as I pray as we commit ourselves to that. Would you just stand with me? Just ask the Lord as we focus our hearts and our minds on him that he would speak. Father, we thank you. God, we come before you today and we, Lord, ask that you would speak to us. As we come to this part of the service every week, Lord, I pray and my prayer is that it is not my words or whoever is on this platform in the morning, Lord, that it is not our words that we hear, but we hear your words. And Father, that we would hear from you today, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word. There is no words of a man or a woman that are going to make any eternal difference in our lives. But Lord, as we submit ourselves and sit under the very word of God, that not only can our life on earth be changed, but eternities for us and for others can be changed as well. So Father, we pray that you speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to jump into Second, First uh, Samuel chapter 24, kind of quickly in our topic this morning of unexpected mercy. Some of you may have heard the story. If you've been watching the news this week, you may have heard a name that prior to this week you had never heard uh, before. At least I had never heard before. Her name is Laura Bassett. Anyone hear the name Laura Bassett this week? Maybe a couple, not many. So let me tell you, (laughs) Laura Bassett, here's a picture of her this week, unfortunately. She was the young woman who plays soccer for England national team. And uh, they were playing in the semifinal round for the World Cup. And they were playing Japan, and it was a tie game. And I had gone into overtime uh, play. And uh, Laura Bassett playing for England, who... Uh, has not played in a World Cup final in, in some time. Playing for her, went to strike the ball away from the Japan team and in hitting the ball, inadvertently knocked it into her own net, uh, scoring the winning goal against her team and knocking her team out of uh, the World Cup and uh, knocking her out of contention, and she was obviously devastated. The next picture you can see is one of her teammates uh, trying to console, console her. And you can imagine, you know, the, the anguish you feel. It's bad enough to lose, right? But when, you know, you might think that you cause the, the loss, but when you actually score on your own net as a professional soccer player. Uh, and I thought about, you know, if, you, if anyone here was around when Bill Buckner in 1986 let the ball go through his legs, and, and uh, I remember that day, and I remember the jokes that were made, and I, all I could think about was Laura thinking, oh, man, Bill Buckner didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all the social media, and I thought, what is this girl in for? 
from the vindictive words and tweets and everything else that will come her way from people who will make fun of her and, and everything else. And I thought, oh, man, that's, that's a tough thing. Actually, it was interesting as I watched it throughout the week and read some of the articles on it. England, who is notoriously tough in their papers and uh, pretty hard on everybody as well as sports players, were very pretty light on Laura. And some people were, couldn't even figure it out. You know, they were like, what is going on? No one's really, you know, giving her a hard time or anything. But they showed for some reason, maybe uh, it was because of the remorse she showed. Some thought, well, maybe because she's a, a female athlete, not a male athlete. But for one reason or another, they showed some degree of mercy to Laura. I, I'm sure she heard her uh, share of taunts and things and, and as well received them in other ways. But at least uh, in, in some ways, there was some mercy shown. And I thought uh, this, mor- this morning and this week in our unexpected sermon series, we're talking about unexpected mercy because that was a bit of unexpected mercy, I think, that Laura received. And, but it's really only a sports game when you think about it. It's a soccer match, an important one, but still only a soccer match. There are other times in life where it's a lot harder and a lot higher stakes when it comes to showing mercy. A few weeks ago, we all were shocked to hear about the tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina, when a gunman went into a church and shot and killed nine people from all accounts and for all reports for no other reason than they happened to be black, and he had no relationship or any other reasoning or motivation for doing it other than hatred and racism. And as the reports started coming out after that day, there was more unexpected mercy, at least unexpected from a lot of fronts and from a lot of people. The news couldn't understand why just within a couple days some families were issuing video statements offering forgiveness, offering grace, offering mercy. Not that they didn't grieve, not that they didn't hurt, but there was something within them that allowed them to offer an unexpected mercy. I saw some articles even questioning whether it was appropriate to offer mercy, whether they would, what they were doing was right to offer their forgiveness for someone who killed one of their loved ones. Mercy's hard to understand sometimes. Unexpected mercy. I guess all mercy is somewhat unexpected. As Christians, we're called to be people of mercy. People who would extend mercy to others, but it's not always easy. Somewhere between the soccer match and someone killing someone you love is probably where most of us live our lives of being called to show mercy. Usually somewhere between those extremes, we find ourselves, whether it's someone who maybe usurped you for a job advancement, maybe it's a family member or friend who hurt you, maybe it's someone who betrayed you, But all times in life, there are opportunities and challenges for us to actually show mercy to people. But how do we do it? How can someone after something like what happened in Charleston, can they really offer true forgiveness and mercy? And if they can, 
How? How is it possible? And how is it possible for you and for me when somebody hurts us, when an injustice comes, when somebody wrongs us, how can we possibly show mercy as we're called to in the Scriptures? In 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26, we see unexpected mercy from an unexpected place. We've been looking at the life of David. David, if you haven't been with us, he was a a man who was anointed to be king of Israel. And the only problem was there was already a king of Israel. His name was Saul. Saul was extremely envious of David. And he's tried to kill him. And in fact, David's on the run for his life. On, on the run for his life when we see him in 1 Samuel chapter 24. But Saul is pursuing him. So here's David. Really no defense. Just some scraggly guys who kind of latched on to him. Bible says they're debtors and discontent people. And Saul is in pursuit of David for his life. And in 1 Samuel 24, 1, it says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. You know where that is, right? He came to the sheep pens, you know, along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that means what you think it means. (laughs) David and his men were far back in the cave. Saul obviously didn't know. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Unexpected mercy. You might be wondering about the logistics of this. I don't know. How, you know, you have 400 men in the back. It's a big cave, I guess, in the back of a cave. Saul's in the front of a cave. Saul certainly takes his robe off to do whatever he needs to do in the cave. David cuts off a corner of it rather than killing him, but he very easily, obviously, could have taken his life and not just a corner of his garment. And a little later in the passage, Saul leaves the cave and then David will shout out after him. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. The passage goes on. David says he spares his life. Paul says, uh, Saul basically says, you're a better man than me. 
And Saul basically says, look, don't do any harm to my life. David says, I won't. And, uh, and Saul says, I won't harm you. And they go their separate ways. But David had the opportunity. He had the opportunity to seize the throne. He had the opportunity to kill Saul. And yet he shows unexpected mercy. It's not the only time he does it, not the last time. If you flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 26, it happens again. Saul lied, no surprise. He once again pursues David to kill him. And while they're camp, while they set up camp in an area that's not far from David, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 8, Abishai said to David, they're in the camp, they're in the enemy camp, they're sleep, the enemy is sleeping and David has crept in. And Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug. Once again, he lets Saul know that he spared his life. Once again, Saul promises and they go their separate ways. But on two occasions... David shows mercy in a place and a time where everyone would say he did not have to. Everyone, I mean everyone, Saul's own soldiers would admit that David, there was no charge against him that warranted his death. In fact, in a couple earlier chapters, we looked at it, Saul told his soldiers to go kill innocent priests and they wouldn't do it. They disobeyed his order. They knew David was innocent too. Saul's own children, Jonathan, tried to convince him. Look, David's innocent. Leave him alone. Saul's own daughter helped David escape so Saul couldn't kill him. Everyone would have said, David, you are justified in running him through and killing him. Yet David alone is the one that said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed and shows mercy when everyone would have said, you are not required to show mercy right now. There are times in your life where someone will say to you, you are not required to show mercy right now. That you are justified not only in your anger, but in your actions. You are justified, some might say, in your revenge. How do you and I in that moment Choose to show mercy when you have been wronged, when you have been betrayed, when you've suffered a loss, financial, in your job, in your family. How can you possibly show mercy? Three quick points, and they are going to be quick, on how I think David and why David could show mercy in this situation and why you and I can show mercy in similar situations. I don't do this always, but this morning they all happen to start with P. So three quick points that start with P on how you can show mercy. The first one is this. You can show mercy when you trust God with your pain. You can show mercy when you trust God with 
your pain. What do I mean by that? If we are on our own, and there's no God, and there's no ultimate judge, and there's no one to, to deal out justice, then you may feel like you alone are responsible to bring about justice. But if you can come to a place where you trust God with your pain, you can come to a place where you can show mercy. There's a chapter in between 24 and 26. Anyone guess what it is? Shocking. It's 20. You've read this before. There's chapter 25 is right between 24 and 26. It describes an instance that I think sheds light on why David could show mercy. I won't read the whole thing. I'm not going to read any of it. I'm going to tell you the story quickly. It's about a man named Nabal who wrongs David. David's men protected his sheep. David said, hey, why don't you just pay me whatever you think is fair? Nabal said, I'm not paying you anything. Forget it. Go your own way. You know, I'm not paying you anything. Nabal was a wealthy man. His name means fool. His wife, Abigail, was not a fool. She was wise. Abigail heard what happened. She went out to meet David because as soon as David got that response, he said, guys, get your swords. We're going to kill Nabal and all his people related to him. We are cutting him and his legacy off the earth. David was mad. Abigail meets him and says, brings food, brings gifts, and says, please don't do it. You're better than this, essentially, is what she says. Don't put this innocent blood on your hands. He's a fool. David turns back. A few days later, Nabal dies. And David, in that moment when Nabal dies, says this, 1 Samuel 25, 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, He said, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Listen to where David's trust is. He had pain. He said, Nabal treated me with contempt. But he said, praise be to the Lord. God took care of it. I think chapter 25 is right there between 24 and 26, not just because it historically happened there, but because what we need to know is David, when he's dealing with Saul, is operating out of this mindset of, look, it's in God's hands. And if God's going to bring it out, I can trust my pain to God. I can trust my hurt to God. I can trust that God will bring it about because he took care of Nabal and I didn't have to raise a hand to him. And so David comes and he comes, approaches Saul in the same way. Yes, I'm anointed to be king. Yes, God has said all these things to me, but I'm not going to force God's hand in any way. He trusts God with his pain. And I think that's the challenge to us as well. Can you trust God with your pain? Because there are times when you will come to a situation And you just have to trust that God is going to take care of it. You have to trust that there is justice that comes from God. And ultimately, whether on this side of heaven or the other, that God is in control. In sports, there's... always someone on the field, the court, or the ice to make sure that everyone plays by the rules. You call them a referee, an umpire, or an official, but there's always someone there. When they make a wrong call, people get upset. 
People get really upset. I've, you've seen it like I have. People throw chairs. They throw things. They get mad. They get thrown out of games. Most sports, but specifically the NFL, has instituted something called instant replay to ca- try and kind of squelch this anger. And a couple of years ago, the NFL instituted something called instant replay on every single scoring play. And before that would happen, here's what would happen. If the referee or the official got the call wrong in the end zone, the coach is irate. And he is yelling at the umpire, yelling at the official, letting him know how upset he is. But in the end, that's all he could do. He could hope that maybe there'd be a makeup call later on in the game. And then the NFL instituted something and said, well, the coach can challenge the call, and then it can be reviewed. And so he could yell, and he could say, I want to challenge it. And they would challenge the call and review it and hopefully get it right. But a couple years ago, the NFL said, we're going to review every single scoring play and make sure we get it right. And so every time somebody scores, there's a group of people in New York City who watch that play from every single camera angle and to make sure that as much as possible, they got the play 100% right. So what difference does that make to the coach? Well, he may still get irate. He may still get angry. But you know what he knows? He doesn't have to worry about it because there is a group of people that are going to make sure that justice is done and they get the play right. He doesn't have to yell and scream and get upset because there's a group of people somewhere they are going to make sure they get the play right. Think about that in our lives too. If you know for sure that someplace there is someone who is going to get the play right, you don't have to yell and scream and demand your pound of flesh and get angry. And David knew this too. There's a God who lives in heaven. And he will do right by his people. And so you can trust God with your pain. And if you trust God with your pain, you can show mercy. Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, if it's possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. The reason you and I can show mercy is because we come to a place where we trust God with our pain. But I would say secondly as well, the reason we can come to a place where we can show mercy is when you can trust God with your pleasure. Trust God with your pleasure, your hopes, your dreams. David was in a place where He must have at times sat around thinking, why am I out here? I have been anointed by God, and here I am on the run for my life. And he must have had times where he thought, how nice would it be to live in the king's house, to have servants, to have armies. But he came to a place where he was not going to force God's hand. And he trusted God with his pleasure. I think there are times in our lives where we feel like, yeah, we can bring our pain to God, but when it comes to our hopes, our dreams, and our pleasures, we have to bring them about by our own hand because God doesn't care about that. Or he doesn't care about it as much as we care about it. We have to come to a place where we will say, God, I will not only trust you with my pain, I will trust you with my pleasure. I remember the first time Wendy and I moved into a one-bedroom apartment after we got married. 
and it was just a one-bedroom apartment. The, the, it was, I, I can't even explain it to you. The carpet was the ugliest brown you have ever seen until you saw the kitchen tile, which was uglier. <laughs> there were little half cabinets and a stove that you'd probably normally put in a camper and no dishwasher, and that's fine. But, there, you know, it was just, it was tiny. I don't know how many square feet it was, but, I, you know, I... I Bed fit in the room but and a desk, but not much else. And, and so we moved in there. And I remember when we first moved in, right after, you could imagine, just get married, just get back from your honeymoon. We hadn't, it was sight unseen. We moved into this apartment uh, because we were moving as students up at Gordon-Conwell in South Hamilton. And we said, hey, look, just give us an apartment. We'll move in, whatever. We hadn't seen it. We move in. We get there that day. And we literally sat on the couch and cried. <laughs> You, you just, you don't know what to expect, but we literally sat there and went, what did we do? But six years later, when we moved out of that apartment, we didn't want to leave. Six years later, we said, we have loved our time here and enjoyed it. And God has blessed us. And we don't want to leave where we are. Through experiences like that in your life, when you come to a place and you say, God, this isn't going to work out, this is going to be awful, and then you look back and you see that God has worked it out, those should be times where you learn to trust God with your pleasure. You know what, God, you do care about the things you do care about. You are a good father. And it is true that every good gift comes from you. And I may not be able to see it, but I'm going to trust that not only are you going to take care of my pain, but you also care about my hopes and my dreams, my joy in my life. That, God, you care about that too. I think sometimes it's even harder for us to trust God with our pleasure than it is to trust God with our, uh, with our, with our pain. Hebrews chapter 12 says this about Jesus. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, would you say that with me? For the joy set before him, let's say it again, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think of Jesus. Why did he go through the cross? For the joy that was set before him. There'll be times in your life that you may have to go through difficult times and show mercy, but for the joy set before him, Jesus did it. He was in a garden praying, God, if there's any other way, let the cup pass for me. And his father answered, it's got to be the cross. Jesus answered, your will, not my will be done because of the joy that I'll receive on the other side. Because it's not about the cross, it's about the joy on the other side. Father, this person has wronged me. Father, this person has betrayed me. Father, this person has stolen from me. Father, this person has hurt my reputation. Father, this person has wronged me. For the joy set before me, I will endure it and offer mercy, and I will trust you with my pleasure and my pain. Lord, I want this dream to come about, and it hasn't happened yet. Someone drops something in your lap, a piece of information, Juicy little tidbit about someone you are competing with for a job. 
And you are so tempted to CC. You are so tempted to CC your boss or someone on an email just to kind of get the information out there. You know it's gossip. You know it's secondhand information. You know it's not your place to do it. But hey, shouldn't they know everything? You know when they're making their decision for this job? In that moment, will you trust God with your pleasure, with your hopes, and with your dreams, not to bring about the will of God in a way that is not pleasing to God? Trust God. David trusted God with his pleasure. And finally, David trusted God with his pain. David trusted God with his pleasure. Finally, David trusted God in the process. Being on the run for his life, Hiding out, acting insane just so he can escape his enemy's hand was probably not the way that most kings get to the throne. But David trusted God with the process. And because of that, I think that's one of the reasons David was a king like no other. Because he could understand what it's like to be on the run for his life. He could understand what it's like to have to scrounge up food. He could understand what it's like to be hungry. And so when someone comes to him as the king in that situation, he is a different kind of king. It's the same with Jesus. Hebrews tells us this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Some people might ask, why couldn't Jesus just come and die? Why did he have to go through everything else? This was the reason. Because he had to trust in the process so that we can go to Jesus and say, somebody has wronged me. Jesus said, I know what it's like to be wronged. Somebody has spit in my face. I know what it's like to have someone spit in my face. Somebody is speaking ill against me. I know what that's like. Somebody has falsely accused me. I know what that's like. Somebody's threatening to take my life because I serve Christ and God. Jesus can say, I know what that's like. He trusted God through the process. So did David. And it may be that in the midst of your life that you look around and you say, why, God? Why? Why this way? Why these difficulties? Why these hardships? Can you in that moment say that I will trust God with the process that I will trust that God is in control, that God is moving, and that God will somehow bring about good through what is being done. Because some of the greatest difficulties you will go through will be some of your places of greatest growth. And some of the greatest difficulties that God will take you through will be some of your greatest opportunities for ministry because later on down the road, someone will come to you and you will say, I've been through that. And I've seen God carry me through, and he can carry you through too. And you can show mercy here because you can trust that God is over the whole process. And yes, maybe you got passed over, and not only passed over, now they're asking you to train the person for the job that you wanted. And they're going to phase you out. Trust God through the process. You're trying to have kids and you want nothing else to have ki- but to have kids and you watch a baby dedication like this and you say, oh God, why not us? 
Trust God with your pleasure. Trust God through the process. You've had a family member that hurt you or slighted you. God, you want to fight back. You want to fight back so bad because you've got a good one ready. But will you trust God through the process? The reason we can show mercy as Christians is when we get to the place where we trust God with our pain, we trust God with our pleasure, and we trust God in the process. And if I know that God is in control, then I don't have to force his hand. I don't have to demand my will. I don't have to assert my rights. I can choose to show mercy. If you don't believe that there is a God who exists and loves you and is just and right, then you have to go and demand your rights. But if you will trust that God is in control, it gives you an option to show mercy. It gives you an option to show mercy. And the greatest reason is because you have been shown mercy. The truth is, each of us are deserving of death, are deserving of punishment from God, and yet he has shown mercy to us. And so you and I are called to show mercy to others, and we can do it when we trust God with our pain, the pleasure, and the process. And what, how different would the world be if it was filled with Christians, if just the Christians, not even everybody else, what if just the Christians would live this out? And show mercy to those around them. How much more would people be drawn to Christ? How much more would people be convicted? Just like Saul, when he experienced the, the mercy from David. He didn't live it out, but he said it with his way. He recognized it. He said, David, you're better than me. David, you have done right by me, and I have done wrong by you. He was convicted of his wrongdoing. How much more so if we would live out the mercy that has been extended to us and show it to others. So I don't know where you are as we close and I close in prayer. Maybe there's something in your life of pain and you need to, in order to show mercy, you need to trust that God knows it and he's just and he's good. Maybe you're at a place where you'd say, I've got this hope and this dream and I have been upset at God for not bringing it about and I have been trying to force it to come about by my own hand. Maybe this morning you would give that over to God and say, God, I will trust you with my hopes and my dreams and the pleasures in my life. I will trust that you have good in store for me. Or maybe you are in the midst of a difficult process and you don't understand it. And this morning you've got to just say to God, God, I will trust that you are at work in my life and I will continue to be faithful and follow you in my life. But the final thing is this, is there someone that you need to show mercy to? I cannot tell you to do it, even if you came and shared your story with me. All I can do is compel you and say, we have been shown great mercy, and we have an option to show mercy to others because of it. Maybe a little further, we have a mandate to show mercy to others because of it. And I'd ask you to consider if the Holy Spirit is putting someone in your heart and your mind right now that you need to extend mercy and forgiveness to and you have been holding that back that this morning 
you would give that over to him and trust him to be able to do that. Father, Lord, living as a follower of Christ is not always easy in our world and the things that you call us to. And Lord, showing mercy to other people in our lives is not our natural instinct as fallen humans. But Father, as redeemed children of God, we pray that it would be evident in our lives that we are people of mercy. And so, Lord, when people come our way and they wrong us and our first instinct is to wrong them back or to get our rights, would you remind us of the example of David, but more importantly, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ? And would you allow us to be people of mercy, to show mercy to others? Lord, your church is to be characterized by many things, but one of them is mercy. I thank you for the faith of those men and women at that Charleston church. I know they will still grieve. I know there is pain. I pray that you will comfort them, that you will extend grace and mercy to them, Lord, that you would continue to give your peace to them as they mourn the loss of husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. But Lord, I thank you for a church who looks to Jesus in their time of trouble. Lord, would you help us in our situations to be people of mercy, people of love, not to live out our Christian faith when it's convenient or easy, but, Lord, to always be living it out before you and before a world that is watching us, Lord. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Just stand and we'll close out our service together.